Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Give your attention to the Word of God from Exodus chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. Then down to verse 21. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Um, Mike uh, is uh, laid up with a back uh, situation, and so we want to continue to pray for Mikey. Mikey would want to be here today because our guest speaker is a dear friend of, uh, of both of ours. Uh, and so, so you can see his wonderful face while I'm introducing him. Davey, would you come, you come up? Dave Johnson, yes, give a hand. In fact, he likes it throughout the sermon, and at yeah. the end, if you would applaud just indiscriminately at times, it gives him stand. some enthusiasm. Not stand. At the end, you can stand, but other than that, just kind of, you know, make him feel good about himself. <laughs> uh, but Dave has, has been, was the senior pastor of Church of the Open Door in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. He was pastor there for 38 years, correct, mm-hmm. which uh, he started when he was 12, right. kind of a boy pastor <laughs> right. there. And he... Um, as uh, uh, Church of the Open Door and Oak Hills have been on a similar journey over the last 20 years in seeking how to reorient the church and the community of faith around uh, what it takes to cooperate the work of the Spirit of God in an in-depth kind of transformation into the image of Christ as persons, individual persons, but also as a, a community. So over the years, uh, we are to... Churches, leadership teams have met. We've been in all sorts of retreats together where we have studied this, learned from this. Uh, Dave and I have done a number of retreats and meetings with other pastors and, and leaders. In fact, Dave is here uh, this week to speak for a group of uh, pastors and leaders from our, all over our conference in North America and uh, the next few days up in Auburn, and then after that we'll be heading down south, uh, Southern California, for another grouping of pastors. And, uh, and so um, Dave has never spoken here at Oak Hills before. I'm sure there's good reasons for that. You never asked uh, me. Well, yeah. <laughs> Pay attention to that. The, um, the, and uh, so we're thrilled about the opportunity for him to, to speak and, and, and be a part of this. And I can say lots of things about Dave, that most of which are true. Um, but the thing that I would want you to know most is Dave is my friend. Um, I love this guy like a brother. We've been through dark times together, have cared for each other in dark times, and uh, celebrated wonderful times. And he lives uh, deeply in my heart and in Mike's heart as, as well. And it's a, a thrill to have him here. Um, one thing you probably should know, and I say this just because uh, I think it's good for our church family to, to pray for him at this time. Uh, Dave was diagnosed last year with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, 
which is a string of big words that is idiopathic, meaning we don't know the cause. Pulmonary is lungs, and fibrosis is scarring. So he has uh, unknown origin, scarring of the lungs. This is a degenerate disease, and there is no cure. Uh, and um, so his lifespan, uh, to at least his knowledge at this point, is shortened, but who knows by how much. Um, he's feeling better now than he was perhaps a few months ago. Minutes and ago. Though. Minutes ago, actually. Yeah. Okay, just by me talking about you, you feel good about yourself. That's right. I understand that. And, and so... Um, not, we're not saying that to feel sorry. He doesn't want that. A little bit, you probably. A little bit. A little bit. Okay, yeah. And uh, but I think mostly just so we can pray and you understand, uh, you know, some of the what's going through this guy's heart at this point. So would you join me in prayer for for my friend and your friend? Father, Son, and Spirit, um, I know you look upon this man and. He brings you delight. He makes your heart glad. And I'm, uh, I'm grateful for my friend, and I've seen him work and minister with such passion and giving of himself, pouring out of himself, uh, because of his deep faith in you, his love for people, his belief that you are real and active, that the Word of God is powerful, and it is our great privilege to have him with us this day. I pray for the doctors and all who treat him with regards to figuring out what to do with the disease, how to, how to treat it. We pray as little children coming to you in the name of Jesus Christ for his healing. We beg you for this. Pray for his wife, his children, all those around him who love him, that you would comfort them and they would continually see uh, your presence in his life and in this whole ordeal. And so um, as he opens up your word to us, uh, give him clarity of thought. Give him fun, give him joy, and may your spirit teach us in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Here's my friend. Thank you, Ken. Um, yeah. Honestly, um, I can't think of a better way to be introduced than <clears throat> he's your friend. I mean that, and so that's good. I love Mike and Kenty. We've uh, known each other for around 20 years, uh, kind of met around this mutual interest and Dallas Willard, among other things, um, but even in the first service, it was just having all sorts of memories of the relationship we've had and the fun we've had and the depth to which our relationships have gone. And there's a weird way in which I feel like I know you just because I know them, and uh, it is indeed an honor to be here. Um, <clears throat> when Mike told me about this series that you guys have been in, the series that is kind of even surprising Mike a little bit that it kept expanding about encountering God on the light rail, which is where you guys started and it became the whole theme because what it's really about is encountering God in ordinary places, <clears throat> unexpected and unlikely places. And then he asked me about wrapping it up. He told me you were going to be wrapping it up this week uh, with the thought of encountering God in, in addition to all those other places, uh, encountering God in the wilderness. Well, that idea made sense. To me, because the wilderness, if not an ordinary place, is certainly an unexpected place for us to encounter God, because the wilderness, both literally and figuratively, uh, can be a dangerous place. Uh, the, the wilderness is an unprotected place. It is a dry and barren place and lonely, too. And it's often a place where we feel abandoned by God, 
may, making it, you'd think, an unlikely place to encounter God. Because how do you encounter God if you've been abandoned by God? He's not even there. At least that's how the desert feels. And while all of that is true about the wilderness, it's also true. And this kind of is a weird thing. That all through the scriptures, there are several places in the scriptures where the wilderness is being experienced by people as a place of conversion, a place of repentance, a, trace, a place of transformation. So there's some life-giving potential in the wilderness. Uh, so sometimes in this unlikely place to encounter God that we call the, de- the desert, it is a place of encounter with God, potentially, and that place that we can hear the voice of God. A great example of that comes early on in the story, and I'm talking the story of God, Genesis chapter 16. This is really early on where Hagar, the handmaid of Sarah, was banished by Sarah. You may remember the story. So Hagar is running from Sarah, and in her desperate attempt to get away from Sarah, she runs right into the wilderness. And so she's in the wilderness kind of by accident. She just was aimlessly running for her life. And the wilderness she finds herself in is not the place she wanted to go. This is not the life she wanted to have because the wilderness is dark and it's scary with very little shelter. And and it's full of the unknown. It certainly was for Hagar. But it's in that place, uh, in this wilderness place that Hagar would I hear the voice of God? Um, because an angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring. It says in Genesis 16, verse 7. And in verse 8, the angel asks her two questions. I'll look at them on the screen. Hagar made of Sarah. Made of Sarah. Um, first question, where have you come from? Second question, where are you going? She doesn't answer. Um, she answers the first question. Here's where I'm coming from. I am fleeing the presence of my mistress, Sarah. She doesn't answer the second question about her destination. Where are you going? And here's why she doesn't answer that question. She doesn't know where she's going. Um, she just got into the wilderness because she's running from Sarah. So she doesn't know where she's going. She doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know what her future holds, not even a little bit. And that is how you know You're in a wilderness. That's how you know you're in a desert. Because when you've left or you've lost something that you knew, that you held, the place that you'd been, the position that you had, the status that you held, but you haven't yet entered into what's next. You haven't entered into the new. That's the definition of wilderness. It's this place in between what used to be and what is not yet. And what is not yet is... Entirely unknown. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. It's the wilderness. That's where you are. But it was in that kind of place. This unlikely place to have encountered with God. That Hagar heard the voice of God. Again in verse 13. For Hagar called on the name of the Lord. And the Lord, it says, spoke to Hagar. And it's significant in the wilderness. Because in the wilderness is... Not a place you normally expect to encounter God or to hear his voice. But here's another strange twist on this hearing the voice thing in the wilderness. Because the actual word for wilderness in Hebrew is debar, which when literally translated means to speak. So wilderness means that. It means that the wilderness is by definition the place where God speaks. Which is not what I would expect. But here's the deal about all of that. Even if all of that is true. 
Uh, and even if I've experienced the voice of God, even in the wilderness, and that's all true, I was just want to tell you, I don't, I still don't want to go there. Even if it is a place of potential encounter, I still don't want to go to the wilderness because the wilderness, regardless of its apparent benefits, is a dry and barren place. It is hot in the day. It is cold at night. It is dark and scary and full of unknown. And I don't like any of those things. And I would never, ever willingly go there. Which is why the text that Kent read and the story it tells in Exodus 13 is perfect, I think, for this theme, because when Pharaoh finally left the people, let the people go, in verse 17 of Exodus 13, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, even though that way was close, but God instead led the people around by the way of the desert into the wilderness. But now, so that picture, just kind of add a little bit more, or because I want to rewind it a little bit back to Exodus 3, and this will kind of complete the thing. But this whole thing began in Exodus 3. Because in Exodus 3, God has just persuaded Moses to do what he called him to do, and that is to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And in verse 8 of Exodus 3, it all sounded great. And and relatively simple, actually. Kind of a done deal. says in verse 8, I will bring you up from Egypt to a good and spacious land. That sounds good. To a land that is flowing with milk and honey sounds even better. To the land or to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And if you're one of the people of God and you hear those places, here's the deal. Everybody knew where those places were. And they weren't very far away. So this wouldn't take long, uh, because once you've left Egypt, all you have to do was cross the Sinai Peninsula and you're there. And if you go direct, which only makes sense, two weeks is all we've got. But it says in verse 17, they did not go that way because God led the people, verse 18, around by the desert into the wilderness. And that is not the way they wanted to go. Promise you. Uh, it was not the way they expected to go or the way that made sense to them at all. So here's what we've got. As the story comes together, the picture becomes clear. Pharaoh has just released them. And though he, Pharaoh is not defeated, and though he is defeated, he's still not destroyed. So Pharaoh is still a threat. There's some tension there. But that's okay, because God will be with us, and he will guide us and protect us with this cloud by day and a fire by night. And all we have to do, after all, is cross to the Sinai Peninsula, and we're home free. A really short trip. So imagine their surprise. And concern in chapter 13, when instead of going east and then north, the uh, pillar of cloud, which is the presence of God, starts taking them south. So he's leading them into the desert, which is the last place they wanted to go. So just as the people of God on their journey with God, spiritually and literally. uh, So just as they're beginning to follow God, learning to recognize his voice and trust his Heart, God begins to take them the wrong way. Which, by the way, in the story of these people, the people of God, this kind of introduces the first major crisis on their journey out of Egypt. And the crisis is this. Will the people of God continue to follow God when they do not understand? When he's taking them the wrong way, will they still say yes to God, even in the desert, on the roundabout way? 
little side note on deserts. Um, because sometimes when we find ourselves in one of these desert places, dry and barren places, um, we often start to wonder, okay, how did I get here? Uh, what did I do wrong? I, 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 it must be my fault. Uh, I must have taken a wrong turn. Um, I thought I was listening, but I must not have been. I thought I was following God, but I must not have been, because I was actually following God. Everything would be fine. Um, maybe I'm harboring some secret sin, and if I can find that, confess it, I'll be back to normal and be out of this stupid desert. But then when you get tired of that, because all the little tricks you do to get out of the desert, and really start, whatever, they don't work because you're still in the desert, you start saying, ah, it's got to be Satan. That's what other explanation could there be? <laughs> We're under attack. This is spiritual warfare. So let's start rebuking the devil. All of you have really, anyway, I've been around a lot of that. Um, after a while, you get tired of that, and the best way to go is, I know the problem here, Moses is an idiot. That's the deal. <laughs> he's a lousy leader, doesn't know what he's doing, because if he did, we'd already be there. Would have been a short trip. But the problematic reality of the story, you already know as I'm even saying those things, is that it wasn't Moses, or Satan, or even some mistake that they had made. Because it was God who led them into the wilderness, who brought them in a roundabout way, and whatever else that may reveal to us about God, it reveals, I think, this, that um, he's just not in a hurry. And at least part of why I think that's true is because God's agenda is just different than ours. It's different than mine. Indeed, I don't think, I don't think, um, I don't think God cares about my agenda. It sounds like he's not very loving. I don't think he does care about yours either. Because uh-huh. uh, my agenda is really quite simple. I'm not bashful about telling you. It's, 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 it's simply, I just want to get there. Whatever the promised land is, symbolically or really, I just want to get there. I want the milk and honey. And by the way, God promised it. It's right in the book. I can see it. So let's get the milk and honey. I want the good stuff. Uh, and so I want to go this way and fast, which only makes sense. Right there, we can. God says, uh, we're going to go that way and slow. That's really going to bug you. <laughs> And actually, I just think that's stupid. I mean, I don't, I don't get that at all. And really quite, quite irritating um, to impatient people. But I don't think God cares about that either. If I think it's um, stupid. Oh, Dave, really? Anyway. Because I'm pretty sure that God's agenda involves a whole lot more than just giving me what I want when I want it, or us what we want when we want it. I think his agenda is much broader than just depositing us in the land, whatever that might be, really, or symbolically. Um, Because whether I like it or not, and I don't like it, God is far more interested in who we are becoming than where it is we're going, or what it is we think we're accomplishing, even, accomplishing even for God. I remember times on our particular journey, and I know Kent and Mike and you as a community have experienced some of the times when you, you, you just begin to wonder if God is with you on your journey. But I've been serving in the church for several years, and I, I began to wonder, is the church actually just a prop? And its only real purpose in my life <laughs> is to pound on me. <laughs> Hmm. And to irritate me. <laughs> That's pretty narcissistic. Everybody's here just for me. Um, 
But but the real deal, if if that is true, it's actually to form in me some things in me that couldn't be formed any other way. And maybe God didn't care at all about how big our church was. And maybe God didn't, and I did, maybe God didn't care at all how successful we were, how cutting edge we were, how popular we were in the community or in the nation. That's even better because God's agenda for his people is not just to deposit us in the land, heaven, whatever the land might be, but to develop us as a people, as a kind of people who are being transformed along the way. And as it turns out, much to my chagrin, uh, the wilderness has a special capacity to do that very thing in ways that no other thing has. In fact, some of God's primary People, all through the scriptures, spend significant amounts of time in the desert. Moses, before this 40-year wandering with the people of God in the wilderness, before all of that, um, he spent 40 years living as a shepherd on the backside of a desert in Midian. Elijah, at the peak of his success, having just routed the prophets of Baal, you remember the story, he's threatened then by Jezebel with his life, so he runs for his life. Guess where he runs to? The wilderness. He runs into the desert. Forty days he stays there. David went there too. Being pursued by Paul, who in a jealous rage was hunting David down through deserts and caves. And David experienced that thing. Like, when is this going to end? Ten years he was chased by Saul into deserts and caves. And then there's Jesus, who at his baptism, before his ministry began, was led by the Spirit into what? The wilderness. This wilderness thing has some meaning To it, he was there for 40 days. So here's the deal, I think, that as a follower of Jesus, you can pretty much count on it as a guaranteed thing, that somewhere along the line, you and actually we as a community, I'm telling you, I think of our churches, your church, my church, that we go through these things, and I can pretty much tell you as a guaranteed thing that somewhere along the line, we're going to log some time, in the desert. Can you, can you imagine 38 years in one church without some desert experiences, some wilderness wandering? And the desert is the place that you do not want to go. It does not flow with milk and honey. You don't get the job. You don't even get the raise. Sometimes these desert experiences are triggered by an event. I mean, maybe in your life, if you're in one, you can even name that event. A relationship shatters, a career goes south, finances dwindle, a, a diagnose comes down the line. You had a dream, and it was a good one. It wasn't selfish or vain. You thought it was from God, and it seemed like God could help you do it. And again, it's very close. I mean, if it was just, it's just right over there, just two weeks' journey, but it doesn't happen um, but sometimes there isn't an event that you can name when you're in this desert place because sometimes you just go there um, and you don't know why. But you do know this, that in this desert place, there is no sense of God's presence. There is no faith that you can feel. It's often called the dark night of the soul. It's also called the wilderness. And if you're in that place right now and... Some of you, I am certain, are, 
You need to know some things. And the first is this, that everybody goes there. Everybody spends some time in the desert. But God has not forgotten you. You have not been abandoned. God knows your name. He knows where you live. But he is never in a hurry. And because that's true, we need to hear this this warning. Because usually the first thing that I want to do in a desert is get out (laughs) as quick as I can. Well, that's weird. No, that's exactly what you want to do as well. So instinctively, I think, we start looking for a way out, a quick fix. That's the problem. Something to medicate this, some way to escape this. And the quicker, the better. Um, Something easy as well. And sometimes we can't do it. You can, you can, we can, we still have enough control of our, our environment, where we live and who's around us to maybe do it, get out of the desert and now we feel a little bit better and so we're out because we could control the situation, which is why Richard Rohr in a book he wrote entitled Adam's Return says this about this, that this is why the poor in some cultures have an advantage over us, particularly when it comes to soul Work. Why? Here's why. Because they stay in it. Wait. Because they have to stay in it. There's no easy way out. There's no instant fix. No vacation to go on. No pill to take. So they have to stay long enough. They have to stay long enough for the desert to do its work. So here they are. The people have got in the desert. And they can't get out. So they had to follow God. No choice this time. It wasn't it was so noble and so spiritual. We just thought, no, you, they had to follow God and they had to do it every day. Indeed, every day they had to decide again today and sometimes so do you. Every day they had to decide again today, are we going to follow the pillar of cloud again today or not? And what if the cloud doesn't move? Are we content to wait? Are we content to get nowhere, even as a church? Are we uh, uh, okay with not making any progress, especially when whatever I think is the promised land is right over there. We could get there on our own. So every day God gave them manna, and every day they would get anxious, and every day they tried to store the manna, and every day (laughs) uh, it bred worms (laughs) and became foul. So here's the deal, says God, I think, I will feed you in the desert, even though you don't like manna. I I will feed you in the desert, but not with yesterday's food. I want you to thank me for today and trust me for that tomorrow that is unsure. But you're going to have to trust me one day at a time. And while I know that sounds horribly cliched, the truth is, this. It's actually the kind of thing you actually learn in the desert. Primarily because <laughs> you have to. In the, you don't have any choice doing it one day at a time because you can't see past the next thing. And then there's this about the desert, that the desert is often a place of protection and even preparation where, if you allow it, God can grow you strong. Exodus 19, verse 4. 
is a place where we actually get God's view of this whole experience the Israelites are going through in the wilderness because he's saying to uh, the, the people in Exodus 19, what I did for you in the wilderness, I provided this, I provided that. And then he says, you need to remember that I bore you on eagle's wings when you were in the wilderness wandering, which sounds Wonderful. It's like I bore you on eagles when I start hearing sappy songs. I think of that, uh, that poster with footprints in the sand. You ever see that thing? Where there's these footprints and there's two sets of footprints and all of a sudden the one set pulls away and there's only one footprint in that and then there's something about, I was left alone. Why did you leave me? And then God in the footprint, stupid thing, says, uh, that was when I carried you. That's not what this is. <laughs> Told you all that to say, forget about that. <laughs> Indeed, this is a reference, this bearing you on eagles' wings. It's a reference to how eagles teach their young to fly. You know how they do that? By pushing them out of the nest. And when they fall out of the nest, they fall and they flop and they flail and they think they're going to die, but they don't because the eagle swoops down, the parent eagle swoops down and picks it up and bears it up on its wings back to the heights again. And when it gets to the heights, and then it drops it again down and the baby eagle is flopping and flailing and during this problem, the little baby eagle doesn't feel really good about mom at all. Um, seriously confused because... I thought you were an eagle of love, that kind of thing. I mean, it is used and stuff like that. Um, but then one day, that eagle starts to fly. And, and then to soar. Uh, and then you start to think, how else could that have happened? I wouldn't have grown that muscle if I hadn't had to. Um, and by the way, this is just um, a really consistent theme. You know it all through the scriptures. Um, Joseph, as a young boy, through a series of dreams, is promised by God to be the leader of a great nation. And guess what? The first thing that happens in the fulfillment of that prophecy, that promise from God, is that he's sold into slavery. Great! Goes to Egypt and rots in prison because he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. I'd call that a wilderness. Um... But it was precisely in that place that God was preparing Joseph for the work of his life, for the fulfillment of those promises and the purposes of God. David was anointed by God to be king. And you'd think if you had been anointed by God, it would be a done deal. It's a straight shot. But it wasn't because Saul was jealous of David. So David had to run for his life like a homeless fugitive who found himself living in caves, but it was in those caves where for 10 years he learned how to wait and not take matters into his own hands. That's illustrated most powerfully when Saul was in the cave and David could have easily taken his life. It's time to wait. We need to let God do this. Another thing about the desert is this. That is the place where I come face to face. With my real motives um, and my pride and my selfishness and sin, my anger and agenda. I didn't think I had energy and I thought I was doing this for God. Uh, you were doing it for God, but you're also doing it for you. And when it's not happening the way I wanted, that's where my anger comes in. And wow, the heat of the wilderness has an amazing capacity to just gently draw all that junk out where people can see it. It's embarrassing. 
but those things are happening to us, not to humiliate it, not to humiliate us, though they might humiliate us, and they're not, they're not there to shame us, but actually to transform us. So Christ be formed in you. So Christ be formed in us. That's his agenda. Um, he doesn't really care how famous you are. Or Kenty. Anyway, that was supposed to be funny. Sorry. They left in the first service. <laughs> Finally, last thing. In the wilderness. The wilderness is sometimes a place where you learn to love God for God. Not for the milk and honey. Um, because in the desert, there is no milk and honey. There aren't any toys, and if there are, they aren't any fun. You don't get the promotion. You don't even get the job. The disease isn't cured. The problem isn't solved. Indeed, all you get in, is this in verse 22. You do get the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, which obviously speaks to the presence of God. But it's a presence when you're in the wilderness that you can't always see and you often don't feel. So he is the God of the roundabout way who did indeed secure our redemption, who then ascended to his throne. But even that, his ascension to the throne after his resurrection was not by the straight route of royal decree, but by the roundabout way of the cross. But now picture this, um, that from that perspective, the risen Christ um, says this to his church, specifically to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you. Promise on a roundabout way, not only to bring you home, but also to grow you up on your way home till Christ be formed in you. A word in closing to those who may be in a desert right now. Know this. All God's people go where you are. God has not forgotten you. You have not been abandoned. God knows your name. He knows where you live. And so God is at work in the roundabout way, in ways you can't always see and may not understand. Let's pray as we close. Got to pray for specifically for those who are in this desert place um, to keep following when we can't see and when we don't feel and to um, have visitations even from you in the wilderness where, where we can indeed hear your voice and encounter your spirit even in the dry places. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.